0: And it's a large autopsy study, so they examined the tissue of of I think it was over f- about 44 people um after after death, unfortunately. Um but but people who died not necessarily um from COVID immediately but had COVID and then died for other reasons after having the infection. So someone in the study, for example, their tissue was examined. 230 days after uh, actually what was just documented as a mild case of COVID by that patient. And they found still in the tissue of these uh, subjects in the study SARS-CoV-2 RNA in just an incredibly wide range of human body sites from the lung tissue, to blood vessel, to liver, to pancreas, to the heart, to multiple areas of the brain, the brainstem, cerebellum, just just RNA and also antigen. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from the leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host, Nathan Rose.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of metagenetics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose. And today I'm thrilled to be looking at long COVID and to discuss long COVID with joining me from Boston, from the uh, Polybio Research Foundation, is Dr. Amy Prowell. Thanks for joining me, Amy.
0: Nathan, thanks for having me on.
1: My pleasure. Uh, so you published, along with a, a colleague, a really detailed and insightful paper recently on some of the drivers potential biological drivers of long COVID and I think it um yeah it really co- covers a lot of uh, key areas obviously so today we were looking at exploring long COVID so before we dive in sounds like you've got a bit of a, a, a I want the listeners to understand your background so can you describe you um You've had your own health issues around infectious illness. Uh, you've got a PhD, as I understand, in microbiology. So, before we dive into long COVID, tell the audience a bit about your own personal history and your interest in uh, microbiology.
0: Sure. So, I was a pre med student in college. I was um, in Washington, D.C., doing that when I got an Epstein Barr virus infection. And I got extremely ill after that infection. I just did not recover. And when I was young, I had gotten between the ages of three and five some really serious meningitis type infections one after another as a young child and I have a fraternal twin sister and she never got those infections and so as I lay in bed basically with the Epstein-Barr virus infection and these really debilitating chronic symptoms I started to wonder if my early childhood infections might have affected my case and and what was happening And so basically, from my own bed, I began to read science journal articles on persistent infection and chronic disease, different pathogens, viral bacterial pathogens, and all the way back to the 1960s, 70s, when there actually was a really robust community at the time um, looking at the persistence of those pathogens, especially in tissue and their ability to drive a range of inflammatory processes that I started to realize and I still think are underappreciated in, in potential chronic disease processes. And so I it's a long story. I ended up doing a number of experimental treatments to improve my own health, including using antiviral supplements, um, a number of pulsed antibiotics, microbiome type approaches. But I regained my health to a good extent, and then I got a PhD. I decided that instead of being a doctor, I actually wanted to better understand the root cause drivers of the illnesses in the first place. What I began to call infection-associated chronic disease, so basically conditions initiated or exacerbated by infection. Um, and, And by the way, what I got diagnosed with during that time was the diagnosis myalgic encephalomyelitis, or ME/CFS, or sometimes called chronic fatigue syndrome, which is a very debilitating diagnosis that that there are millions of patients around the world suffering from, and and it does it has that central trend. The majority of cases begin with a viral infection often and sometimes a bacterial infection and pa- and patients don't recover. So that that core trend, what is happening when people get sick after an infection, became what I studied as a researcher and I got a PhD in Microbiology to study that topic. And from there I decided that I would like to build research on that general topic. I, as a PhD student, Because actually, I was still a bit sick and didn't, you know, didn't sometimes have the ability to stand up for very long periods of time, I was allowed to do part of my PhD as a literature based thesis that pieced together research I did in different labs and in different courses. And while I was doing that, I noticed that different labs and different research teams often weren't communicating well at all. And one team would have samples or an understanding of the disease that the team next door to them down the hall could benefit from but didn't realize was occurring. And I started to realize that there actually needed to be a lot of connection among scientific research teams studying infection-associated chronic disease for research on the conditions to really move forward at the fastest and most robust pace. And so, eventually, I started the nonprofit that I'm currently the president of, PolyBio Research Foundation, to do that. What we do is we identify teams at different academic institutions across the globe who are doing high-level work with innovative technologies on a number of different pathogens, different viruses, different bacterial pathogens, sometimes the involvement of those pathogens in cancers or even Alzheimer's disease, and we help those teams understand how they can also adopt their methods, adopt their technologies to study patients with me and other infection-associated chronic conditions, and now also long COVID, as you mentioned. We are in this really terrible situation now where a, a subset of patients who get COVID that were infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus are also not recovering and developing debilitating chronic symptoms. And those patients are being given the diagnosis long COVID or post-acute sequelae of COVID packs, depending on on what you want to call it. And so because we've had as a nonprofit organization and and I as a scientist so much experience on this trend of infection and the the chronic symptoms that that it can drive, we are were able to begin a really large research program on long COVID that we are working on every day right now to study core biological trends in the condition. And that paper you mentioned was a paper I wrote with my Harvard colleague, Mike van Elziker. He's a neuroscientist that also studies MECFS. And we drew from that paper, I can talk about that paper later, and the core biological trends we delineated in that paper that we think contribute to the long COVID disease process to design our research program on long COVID.
1: Wow, what a, what a background and what an endeavour. Uh, there's a couple of threads I want to pick up on what you mentioned there. Um, firstly, yeah, what, what struck me with the paper is that, um, not that I know too many microbiologists, but it sounds like, as you mentioned, they can sort of work in their little niche and have their tissue of interest or their infection of interest and become very sort of, maybe myopic. Um, but yeah, your paper was very descriptive of, um, all these different methods and processes and, um, yeah, it shows great collaboration. And the other thing I I wanted to ask you about, it's been sort of on the back of my mind is, um, your views on infectious illness. You you mentioned this, um, infection associated chronic disease, um, I suppose the like way back, back when it was was a Coke or Cox postulate around there's really some sort of simple sort of algorithm about that the original understanding of infection that it had to be in the present in in you know in the patient who was ill and yet to be able to culture it and yet to administer it to someone or an animal that was um, free of that disease and they'd get the disease and so forth. Um, but it, it feels like obviously a lot of these illnesses you look at. It's it's sort of complicated, like in, infection is maybe suf- um, necessary, but not sufficient, um, like autoimmunity and so forth. And So it's obviously a, a whole nother uh, podcast, but there's a lot of links with, um, say, Alzheimer's or autoimmunity and, and chronic infections. But obviously, um, a lot of people have these infections latent. so, I don't know, have you got a bit of a model of it? Um, has there <laughs> been sort of updates on this sort of basic, simple Cox postulate to, to what we're experiencing today?
0: Yes, I'm not sure if anyone's really delineated a specific model to replace Cox postulates, but I think many researchers including myself think that Cox postulates are dead, especially f- for chronic disease. Maybe not acute infection, but you know, acute infection I mean when you're first infected by a pathogen and you just have the, you know, high level most noted symptoms of the disease, right? You know, like acute covid. But in chronic disease where people are sick for long periods of time, the way that pathogens act and mix and match into those chronic conditions absolutely defies cox postulates so cox postulates are are some very simple rules as you alluded to that essentially state that if an in, an infectious agent a pathogen a bacterial viral pathogen is connected to a disease then it has to meet a series of rules to, to be connected to it it basically there has to be this is the real problem one pathogen per disease now that in other words you know let's say tuberculosis it, in tuberculosis meets the disease meets cox postulates because we do know that mycobacterium tuberculosis that bacterium drives cases of what's called tuberculosis right so th- they did a number of experiments to show that that also a part of cox postulates they infected mice with m tuberculosis bacteria and showed that it drives the disease that 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 does provide, that did provide historically some clarity for just starting to understand infectious disease. But yeah, it, when it comes to chronic conditions, what many labs across the world have realized and have started to document over the past years is that different pathogens can collectively drive chronic disease processes. So you can have, we even sometimes call them different hits in a patient. So a patient could have epstein bar virus infection. They could also have an ongoing issue with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. They could also have a bacterial infectious problem. They could also have imbalance of their microbiome communities, which are these ecosystems of bacteria, viruses, fungi, these vast ecosystems of organisms that persist in the gut and the mouth and human body sites. And all of the organisms, those different pathogens and organisms, their collective activity the way that they can collectively dysregulate our immune responses, our gene expression, our gene signaling, even our metabolism, that can collectively add up to drive a chronic disease process. So so Cox postulates are just not relevant to chronic disease anymore. And it is confusing though, because they're still in some science and medicine textbooks and they they, they have held back that understanding is the truth. That That is a constant issue in science is that the textbooks Take a long time to be revised and rewritten, and and it takes, you know, and and that means that certain people are still stuck in old paradigms when we need to rapidly move on and the, the new ones.
1: Yeah, well said, and I think obviously we're getting to now. Long COVID is probably a, a very good example of defying the sort of the, the quote unquote laws of the of the past. So let's look at long COVID. Um, it's obviously. Uh, quite prevalent now that many people have contracted the illness so before we dive into some of your theories or not your theories but some of the, the theories behind it um i, I want to ask around some risk factors primarily to ask like does that help hint at which of these theories may be you know more apply, play or does it, helps explain why some of the, the symptoms are manifesting so um so what are some of the, the risk factors or what's linked to COVID? Is it um, how severe the infection was? I, th- I think there's like a, a sex difference. And uh, I don't know if vaccination status has any effect. So, um, yeah, what are some of the prevalent risk factors and any sort of insights on in what that means on the etiology?
0: That's a good question. So the interesting thing is that you would expect that the majority of long COVID cases would probably occur in people who had really severe cases of COVID, hospitalized patients who battled the virus in in that phase. And that's not actually what we're seeing. We see, and lots of clinics are documenting this, and there's a number of studies that have documented this, we see a large number of long COVID cases in patients who had only mild COVID infections, or even who were asymptomatic at the time when they were actually infected. And they, in, in fact, even some cases where People had an asymptomatic infection, thought it wasn't a big deal at all, and then a month or two down the line is when their symptoms really began, right? So uh, an opposite trend there to what you'd expect. That trend suggests strongly that it's not just inflammatory damage from the original infection that's driving chronic symptoms in patients. Something else seems to be going on. And I'm not saying there can't be inflammatory damage. That could obviously play into people's cases, certain people's cases. But it's not simply that these patients just had a bad case of COVID and they they need time to recover from that. it's, It's something much more than that. And there's also, there is a higher incidence of long COVID in women that's been documented and continues to be documented. That's the same that we see in ME-CFS, the illness I mentioned that I was diagnosed with that we studied before COVID began. Um, and the reasons for that are not fully understood. That's a topic we research. There are absolutely, you know, obviously differences in hormonal signaling between men and women. We know that. And what I think is interesting is that some of the hubs of hormonal signaling in the human body what are called the nuclear receptors, the estrogen beta receptor, the androgen receptor, these hubs of, of, of hormonal signaling also control huge components of the immune response. So there's a lot of interplay between hormonal signaling and the immune system in, in a patient. And I think that at the very least, the pathogens that, that infect people with long COVID, SARS-CoV-2, and other pathogens that are involved in these cases are, are probably dealing with a different immune system to an extent in women versus men just simply due to those hormonal differences tied to immunity. But it, 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 the area just needs much more study. I don't know that I we can then predict why people develop long COVID exactly off that yet, but we just know that more women seem to be getting ill uh, as compared to men. And we also know that a lot of patients report relapsing remitting symptoms. So their symptoms may flare. They might have some really bad days followed by some somewhat better days. And then they might crash in a sense where they just report that all of a sudden their symptoms flare and they just tank and, and hit hit ground again with with, with with a lot of debilitation. And We've seen that in ME/CFS too. There's a symptom that's part of the ME/CFS diagnostic criteria called post-exertional malaise, which is actually just a very hard symptom. Which means that in the moment, and this is true of, of many patients with long COVID, in the moment the patient can exert themselves somewhat. So they can walk a bit, they can walk up the stairs, they can do some some they can do the dishes, to a point. I mean, they're still struggling, but they can do it. But then The next day, 24 hours or 48 hours later, they totally crash from that activity. They just, they can't recover from it. So that's the post-exertional malaise that they suffer from. So there's this sort of spiral where patients deal with those symptoms. And also just a lot of the symptoms that are relapsing and remitting can be very flu-like in nature. So when there are rises in symptoms, people will often report increased sore throat, increased coughing increased just flu-like symptoms feels a little bit like they're still infected which to be fair is the central research trend in long covid at the moment i mean i'll just i'll just cut to that point the 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 biggest topic under study that there's growing evidence for in long covid and that our own collaborative research initiative is studying as its central topic our different teams is just the straightforward possibility that patients with long COVID haven't fully cleared the virus and that a low amount of virus still remains in their bodies in what we call a reservoir. So usually when a virus doesn't fully clear, it doesn't remain in the blood. This is common of many viruses. That's just, in simple terms, it's just a dumb place to be because the immune system is robust in the blood and it's likely to get targeted if it's in the blood. So, again, in simple terms, the virus will move and hide in tissue. So, in the intestinal tissue lining, in the lining of the lung, in the lymph nodes, even in the in the lining of the blood vessels maybe and and those are called reservoir sites. We refer to those as reservoir sites. And so there's growing evidence that that may be one of the primary drivers of long COVID and and one thing I'll make clear is we don't necessarily I don't think any researcher really studying long COVID well thinks that every long COVID patient has the exact same thing happening we don't think there's this one thing that is long COVID but we strongly think that a majority of patients may not be fully fully clearing the virus and that that may be sort of one of the most overarching trends impacting long COVID cases
1: yeah, it's it's fascinating. So, um, does that explain if, if does that partly explain some of the symptoms? Can you just maybe also yeah. just circle back to are there any unique symptoms of long COVID, and or do the symptoms yeah support like the 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 reservoir reservoir sort of theory of um, persistent infection?
0: The reservoir theory does, and and you know I can also go through some of the really interesting evidence that now supports it. Uh, after yeah, this, absolutely. I'll have to explain it a bit because there's been some pretty interesting studies that that it's so it's it's becoming less of a theory and more of a data, you know, supported um, reality. But. Overall, the symptoms that patients get with long COVID, first of all, there's a huge variability in symptoms depending on the case. I think over 200 symptoms have been documented in patients. There are some core symptoms. Patients definitely have the flu-like symptoms, the, the malaise, the pain, aches. You know, sometimes patients will describe ME-CFS, which can be overlapping, overlaps greatly with the symptoms of long COVID, is sort of having a really bad flu also while having a really terrible hangover at the same time. So just flu-like symptoms, but also just achiness and headaches and just everything bothers you. Sensitivity to sound and light and just, just really feeling disaster on that front. But in addition, there's also autonomic symptoms. So Patients, you know, we re- should easily obviously be able to move from a sitting to standing position and our body should, you know, the autonomic nervous system adjusts for those changes. But patients with long COVID, a lot of times they move from just sitting to standing and they become incredibly dizzy, they'll faint. So if you do, you know, sometimes in, in the clinic a tilt table test or a test where you're actually, in a sense, provoking that to, to just document this is happening, patients are are absolutely showing problems with autonomic uh, control of 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 that sort of blood pressure regulation. And also, like I mentioned, the post-exertional malaise, and also, um, you know, I I would say, yeah, I would say those are the top symptoms, um, flu-like, autonomic, post-exertional malaise, eh, pain, nausea, and a variety of other symptoms like that, aching, joint pain as well. And the, the reservoir possibility, the possibility that patients just aren't fully clearing the virus does explain those that variability in symptoms, those different symptoms actually most easily because we know well that during acute COVID, people can have a wide range of different symptoms. So as I'm sure we're all aware, some people who get COVID just lose their sense of smell and they don't have any other symptoms. And then some people who get COVID have the you know classic sore throat and brutal lung symptoms and, and incredible problems with coughing. Other people just get GI symptoms and diarrhea or constipation. Other people have reported just a really severe pressure headache and and, and dizziness and, and cognitive problems. So we know that there's this wide range of symptoms that people experience in COVID. So certainly if they just don't people don't clear the virus, you would also expect them to have a wide range of, of chronic symptoms. And that would be especially true if the virus persist in different patients at different body sites. So in some person, the virus may have infected the gut more, and it might be persisting a bit in the intestinal tissue of the gut lining, whereas in someone else, it might have gotten into cardiac tissue or into the lymph system. And that, in and of itself, would result in very different symptoms in different patients, despite the fact that the overall trend of just not clearing the virus is the same between patients.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, it's quite a problematic virus. Um, out of curiosity, are there other viruses that seem to to burrow in? Um, but probably a more important question. Um, you mentioned there's some Are there some hallmark studies now that show that it's popping up in in strange places. And is it because of, like the the spike protein on like ACE two receptors or something? What is it? On how does it like <laughs> infiltrate everywhere and anywhere?
0: Yeah, well. The spike protein is definitely a, a pathological protein, but the main issue with SARS-CoV-2 and and persistence of the virus, and and you know we do know that other viruses are are capable of persistence. So the herpes viruses, for example, are just a classic example of that. Granted, they're DNA viruses, and and SARS-CoV-2 is an RNA virus, so that's some difference there. But the herpes viruses. Uh, like Epstein-Barr virus, varicella, that the chickenpox agent, driver of disease. Once you get that virus, you have it for life. You may not have symptoms. Uh, I mean, up to 90% of people or more in the human population harbor at least one latent herpes virus. And what happens is the virus persists in, in, yes, a latent or dormant form where it sort of doesn't drive symptoms. But then under conditions of stress or immune dysregulation or maybe even another infection, it can activate and, and drive symptoms. I mean, the herpes viruses can drive cancers. They, 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 are, they can, when they're active, they can drive a wide range of disease processes. So, and, and other RNA viruses, a, a really interesting one that, that, that actually we delineated in our paper on long COVID when we were actually trying to understand that persistence of, of SARS-CoV-2 would be an issue in long COVID is that post Ebola syndrome, is actually now connected to persistence of Ebola RNA in tissue body sites or ana- what they call anatomical sanctuaries. So an Ebola is an RNA virus. So in patients, you know, this is this is a common theme that I, I'm not sure everyone knows is most well studied viral or bacterial pathogens are connected to chronic symptom development in a, in a small subset of people who get the virus. And that includes Ebola, Zika. So, like I said, there's a condition post-ebola syndrome where people get Ebola and some people don't recover. And for a while, that was considered mysterious. No one knew how to explain it. And then, you know, researchers in the post-ebola community moved beyond just getting blood samples on those patients. And remember, again, the viruses are rarely in the blood if they persist. Their genetic material isn't there. So if you just study blood, you can you will incorrectly conclude that the person cleared the virus, right? But they looked, they actually looked in semen samples from Ebola post Ebola patients, in eye tissue, in brain tissue, and then they still found the genetic material of the virus in in post Ebola patients. And to the point where there was a new Ebola outbreak in Africa, and when they traced back the strain of the Ebola virus that started that outbreak, it was nearly identical to that. That had been from you know sequenced from a previous outbreak five years earlier. So multiple research teams concluded that the new outbreak must have been seeded by a persistently infected patient with Ebola who just harbored that virus persistently until it, it started the new outbreak. Right. So so we know very well that RNA viruses um, beyond SARS-CoV-2 are, are, are capable of persistence and driving chronic symptoms in a persistent state. With SARS-CoV-2. You know, you have a number of big studies now that just show that the virus is capable of persistence throughout the human body and brain. One of those studies is actually an NIH study literally called, I think, persistence and infection of SARS-CoV-2 throughout the body and brain (laughs) is the title of the paper. And it's a large autopsy study. So they examined the tissue of, of, I think it was over about 44 people Um, after after death, unfortunately, Um, but but people who died. Not necessarily um, from COVID immediately, but had COVID and then died for other reasons after having the infection. So someone in the study, for example, their tissue was examined 230 days after uh, actually what was just documented as a mild case of COVID by that patient and they found still in the tissue of these uh, subjects in the study. SARS-CoV-2 RNA in just a, an incredibly wide range of human body sites, from the lung tissue to blood vessel to liver to pancreas to the heart to multiple areas of the brain, the brainstem, cerebellum, just just RNA and also antigen, you know, protein created by the virus in, in, in all of these body sites. Again, not in the blood, in, in the tissue of patients. And that does come down to the fact that SARS-CoV-2 infects. Patients um, via the ACE2 receptor on cells. So that's the entry receptor that it uses to get into a human cell. And almost all human tissue types express ACE2 as a receptor. So SARS CoV 2 can basically infect any kind of human tissue. It's just that, that's, you know, that's not, that's a not great thing about this virus is that if it was a receptor that was only expressed on certain cell types or something, maybe the virus would only be able to infect certain tissues. But unfortunately ACE2 is expressed throughout the whole body and and tissue. So SARS-CoV-2 appears capable of persistently infecting most tissue throughout the human body and brain, which which is really disconcerting. And that's, you know, to me at least, and I think to people who know this line of research, that's one of the most disconcerting um, aspects of getting COVID. I mean, it is definitely, and it's also one that is least communicated to the public right now. And, you know, and I think is, is, is a source of confusion because when you get COVID, you know, and, and this matters because our governments have largely placed the responsibility of how people want to act, you know, and protect themselves from COVID on, on the individual. Okay, so they say, you know, it's up to you. Decide, you know, do whatever you want, obviously. Just you can choose to wear a mask, wear a mask, be vaccinated, That's and that's fine. But if you're going to tell people that they should make decisions of, of for risk, then you do have to tell them the implications, the full implications of getting COVID, right? So what we realize is as researchers studying long COVID is that the implications you're facing are not just you know, if you will live or die when you get COVID, not that it's a terrible people pass away from COVID, but that's not the only thing you're looking at. You're actually looking at what if you don't clear the virus? What if, even if you feel okay, it could persist in your body in a tissue site. Maybe you develop symptoms that become part of a long COVID case. And I'm not saying that's the only thing in long COVID, but as you can tell, it's a trend we're looking at closely or You know, we can't tell you that we don't know that that SARS-CoV-2 couldn't act a little like a herpes virus, where you get it, it's latent, you don't have symptoms, but then years down the road, maybe it does activate under different conditions and could drive problems then. We don't don't know that couldn't happen, right? So at this point in time, that's why our research program has prioritized the study of the persistence of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, because it's a really important thing for us to know to To understand how we should be, you know, acting right now in in the face of the ongoing pandemic. Yeah. And yeah. and just to give you one more study example that that was really interesting um, in long COVID, on that strongly suggests that that patients are not fully clearing the virus. Is there's a team at Harvard who used a very sensitive technology to identify the spike protein, and and they found. That in long COVID patients in blood, they at least over 65% of patients in study in the study still harbor the spike protein in blood with long COVID. And again, what they think is happening and what they hypothesize in the paper is that the virus likely persists in tissue, but maybe the spike protein can bud off the virus when it's in tissue, probably in a little vesicle called like an exosome, a little extracellular vesicle. And maybe the spike can actually leak into the blood, where then it can also drive a wide range of other clotting and inflammatory processes in the blood. So that's a trend we're looking at is the virus may be in tissue, but spike may leak into blood. And and that study, which did find circulating spike in a high number of long COVID patients via a very sensitive, accurate Harvard method, was a pretty big study um to show that, that this might be ha- that, that persistence of the virus matters in non-COVID.
1: Wow, what a malicious mechanism it possesses. Um yes. so it sort of begs the question, um, if there is this persistent infection, can antiviral therapies treat it or is the horse really bolted? Is it sort of burrowed into to tissues? Is there any has there been any research done yet or is it still premature? What's the the thoughts around treating the infection? Um, long after the sort of acute uh, sequela has settled down.
0: Yes, antivirals are a top therapeutic that people are already hoping to position into the long COVID space. And the question is going to be, you know, if the persistence of the virus continues to be demonstrated as a big driver of long COVID, the question is going to be the duration to which patients would need to take it exactly like you said. So When a virus is persisting in a chronic state, yes, it's exactly. It can be more embedded in tissue. Also, when RNA viruses persist, they employ a number of mechanisms to sort of evade the host immune system when they're in tissue. So sometimes in simple terms, they sort of trim part of their genome a bit there and so that the immune system doesn't recognize them as much, but they can sort of re... Get more nucleotides and grow it back. It's it's really impressive. There's a paper by one of the researchers that's part of our initiative is Diane Griffin. She's ah uh, she's at Johns Hopkins University and she's just been studying this topic of persistence of of RNA viruses for for decades. And you can actually read a paper she wrote called "Persistence of Viral RNA." I think that's the name of the paper. And just It walks through all these mechanisms that RNA viruses have to better embed themselves in tissue, to better uh, make sure that the immune system doesn't recognize them. So that does mean that if we use antivirals to treat them in a chronic form, we might need it because we know this with other RNA viruses that are capable of persistence, the hepatitis viruses, for example, we might need longer courses of antivirals. We might need to use multiple antivirals. We might need to have a patient do two antivirals at the same time that are targeting the virus from different angles. We might also have to use antivirals with immunomodulatory drugs that also give, you know, strengthen the immune response. For example, uh, inc- improve interferon signaling with interferons being part of the immune response that, that targets viral infection. So, so potential drugs or, or T cell-based therapies that, that support T cell function, which are being used in cancers. We may need to combine antivirals with drugs that also support and modulate the immune response to best really get at the issue. And we are supporting research on exactly that topic. There is a researcher at University of Pennsylvania that's part of our initiative that is using organoid models, so tissue models of intestinal tissue, lung tissue, blood vessel tissue, kidney tissue, too, and she can infect them with SARS-CoV-2 watch what the virus does in the tissue and then treat the tissue with different combinations of antivirals and immunomodulatory drugs and actually document how that plays out in the tissue. And it's going to be that research, that type of research, that's going to help us understand how to best position these drugs into clinical trials that if they end up working out, will probably at the end of the day need to combine different therapeutics to maximize outcome which it, which is done you know uh, in hiv for example we know that patients patients take a whole cocktail of drugs mm. to manage the virus so it, it wouldn't be it would probably be similar in long covid
1: yeah 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 it's uh, yeah look forward to seeing what unfolds i'm sure it can't happen too soon but um i'm glad you're a part of it so I want to move on to a couple other areas it relate obviously, to the SARS-CoV-2 infection. You outline in your paper, which again I think shows the complexity and the the interconnection, uh, but also maybe hints at um, therapeutic targets. Uh, to To lead into this, um, it sounds like the SARS-CoV-2 infection does can cause long-standing um, effects, immune dysregulation, or even immune suppression um and then that's the sort of the the virome or the microbiome and again it's a it seems like a chicken or egg thing when we get to the microbiome is it the dysbiosis that makes you more vulnerable to, to um SARS-CoV-2 infection but can you describe the some of the downstream effects on the body of uh SARS-CoV-2 infection how that can sort of set the patient up for um pathology in the future
0: definitely yeah so that would be the sort of second central trend that we're studying in long COVID is that the patient could be infected with SARS-CoV-2 and maybe they don't clear the virus or maybe they do. But SARS CoV2, when they have it, does downregulate many components of the immune response. So especially I mentioned interferons, they are, you know, cytokines, they're immune molecules that that are the first sort of most important signaling molecules the body uses to just make sure viruses are kept in check. And SARS-CoV-2 creates over at least 10 proteins that disable that signaling. So if you're infected with SARS-CoV-2 and you harbor other viruses, and like I said, humans are seeded with persistent viruses and sometimes bacterial pathogens over the course of their lifetimes. So the herpes viruses, Epstein-Barr virus, HHV-6, human herpes virus 6, 7, we accumulate these viruses for better or worse, and they—well, not better for worse. I'll, I'll be honest. I don't know. There's not really much benefit of accumulating them, but we just do. They're widely spread, and so, as I mentioned before, when people are healthy, they're in a dormant form. But if that interferon signaling, for example, is knocked down by SARS-CoV-2, they can emerge from that dormant form, and then they can probably and likely infect new nerve, new tissue. The the herpes viruses are neurotrophic pathogens, which means that they preferentially infect nerves. So they could likely better spread throughout the nervous system, which can drive a number of symptoms. And the same is true of of non-viral pathogens. There are people, for example... I mean, there are people who, for example, have gotten a tick bite and might not have noticed. I, you know, that's one of the topics that we also study. Or gotten a vector-borne pathogen, for example, Bartonella. So sometimes people don't realize that that even a dog, unfortunately, can transmit uh, vector-borne pathogens, Bartonella, other other bacterial organisms that are a little like the herpes viruses, sometimes, especially Bartonella, where again. It might be dormant. It might not be driving too many problems, but if the immune response is depleted, it can act up and drive a number of symptoms. So, depending on what a patient, sort of which pathogens a patient already harbors in a latent state, the the collection of those when they get a SARS-CoV two infection that may be another reason for chronic development symptoms in different people because certain viruses or bacterial pathogens emerge from latency and then those pathogens may be the problem in certain cases. And, And the same is true for the human microbiome. So we're all seated with these vast interacting communities of bacteria, viruses, fungi that persist in ecosystems. So in the gut, even in the lung now, we know that in the mouth, the oral cavity, in many human body sites. And under conditions of health, those communities persist in a state of balance. But again, when the immune response is depleted and the immune system can't control all the organisms in those ecosystems, sometimes some of them can change their gene expression. We, we actually call those organisms pathobionts. So pathobiont refers to an organism that can persist in a microbiome community as a commensal organism, but under conditions of immune dysregulation or imbalance can change its activity, can change the genes that it turns on and off to start to act like a pathogen, to begin to create molecules that are pathogenic, to begin to actually create products that are problematic. And so that can happen as well under conditions of of SARS-CoV-2 infection, is that the immune system goes down from the SARS-CoV-2 infection and the collective activity of the microbiome ecosystems in the patient's body in the gut the mouth the lungs themselves move towards a state of imbalance sometimes called dysbiosis and that itself can lead to again many other you know chronic symptoms are are, are associated with microbiome dy- dysbiosis or imbalance and and that in turn for example, let's say that the now the microbiome community in a patient's gut or mouth is imbalanced. That will lead to inflammation in the area. That inflammation can wear down the lining of the gut or the lining of the oral cavity that usually keeps those organisms in that body site. And so the barrier to the gut, for example, can become more leaky or permeable, and that can allow organisms from the gut to spill over into the blood. It can allow their products to spill into the blood. And once they're in the blood, they're very pro-inflammatory. So that can increase microbial burden there. That can lead to potential other inflammatory issues, clotting issues. So you have a lot of flow-on effects that can happen from collective microbiome imbalances and sort of the wear down of host barrier function as that occurs and the leakage of microbial microbes and their products themselves into the blood and other body sites as well.
1: And does that, um, you mentioned in your paper, thank you, um, you mentioned your paper, hypocoagulability and and clotting seems to be um, noted in long COVID patients. Is that a bit Mm -hmm. of a a sequela of this sort of general dysbiosis, this multiple infection and immune dysregulation?
0: Yes, we think so. So there's a very important, Paper discovery in long COVID by our collaborator, Recyr Pretorius and Doug Cowell, who's in the UK, Recyr in South Africa at Stellenbach University, and they identified fibrin amyloid microclots. That's what they call them in the blood of patients with, with COVID and also long COVID. And these are little fibrin amyloid deposits that, that, that luckily, they're not big, in, they're little clots. They're not big enough to cause a stroke, but they can almost certainly accumulate in the capillaries or small blood vessels of a patient. And by doing that, they probably likely prevent blood from reaching the body's small vessels, and blood carries oxygen, so that might prevent oxygen from reaching the tissues of the body, resulting in hypoxia. And then once you have clotting, you know, these little amyloid deposits, that will begin further coagulation, clotting-type processes that start to activate neutrophils, innate immune cells, lead to neutrophil extracellular cellular trap formation or net formation, which is another inflammatory uh, immune response that can be associated with infection and clotting. Just it, it starts to s- a cycle of of innate immune and and clotting and and other types of signaling that then can cause inflammation that can damage the vasculature or the blood vessels themselves, likely. And so we're we're definitely looking at at a possibility in long COVID where, I mean, let's say patients don't clear the virus, a little bit of virus remains, you know, and the, the spike protein from, well, let me, let me make one thing clear with the microclots in that study. The team added in an experiment, they added the SARS-S1 protein into blood and fibrin like the clots resistant to breakdown formed. So it seems that the clots their formation can be partly at least catalyzed by the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. So then that's a direct correlation if that holds between the virus and and the clots. And other teams have also showed that the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein is connected to clotting processes. So you can see a scenario where different patients don't clear the virus or have ongoing issues with the spike protein like that, and then that perpetuates Clotting issues, and then the clotting issues perpetuate problems with the blood vessels and the vasculature. So that can is almost certainly a big problem in long COVID as well. So that the endothelial dysfunction, the vasculature issues that result from that, and there there are patients anecdotally taking supplements that can break up fibrinogen, which is part of these microclots that have been identified, and they're anecdotally a. Decent number of patients are reporting some benefit, so it suggests that these these clots could be part of the the sequelae of the disease process. Also, the same team found that that accompanying the fibrin amyloid clots are are just hyperactivated platelets, and platelets are little red blood cells that that are you know actually very responsive to viral and bacterial products, and so if they're stimulated by viral and bacterial products they they respond, but if the viral and bacterial products, you know, are perpetually activating them, they become hyperactivated. They just, they just become, they their activity is overstimulated. And they did show, the same team showed that long COVID patients have hyperactivated, very hyperactivated platelets as well, which are also connected to clotting processes. And that, interestingly, comes into the microbiome component a bit because we know, like I said, that these platelet cells have receptors that recognize a wide range of bacterial and fungal and viral proteins to become activated. So if you have leakage, let's say the microbiome community, like I said, in the gut or the mouth has become imbalanced or dysbiotic, and now you have leakage of microbes and their products into the blood, well, that will activate platelets. and the platelets are hyperactivated in long COVID and then the platelets contribute to parts of the microclotting cycling processes. And, you know, the fibrin that is part of the microclots is a known component of bacterial biofilm. And what I mean by that is bacteria, when they persist, especially if bacteria got into blood, they, they don't, they team up it's it's dumb for them to swim around alone. They'll they'll get targeted. So what they do, bacteria does do this not just in blood and in, in in tissue as well. They form into little communities uh, called biofilm. Little, you know, it's a whole. Just Google it. That biofilm are incredible to to look at. They they form communities where they actually signal. They have molecules where they signal to each other to build these little communities. And and sometimes biofilm are complex. There are bacteria on the inside that you know, are are creating certain products for nutrition for the community, while bacteria on the outside of the biofilm are are acting in a more defensive way, producing products that are aiding in defense. I mean it's it's really they kind of split up duties in this biofilm. So biofilm are a component of of chronic disease as well, biofilm deposition in body sites. But fibrin is 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 the matrix when when bacteria form into biofilm, into these groups they surround themselves with fibrin. So we are actively pursuing the possibility that in the fibrin amyloid microclots in long COVID, some of that fibrin formation may actually be around bacteria. So so in other words, these fibrin amyloid microclots and hyperactivated platelets, they may very well be a downstream result of what I mentioned before, that the persistence of the virus, the spike protein leaking into blood, microbiome, imbalances, products and proteins reaching the blood, bacteria that leak into the flood, forming into biofilm, perhaps that's what drives the formation of the clots.
1: Wow, what a cascade of uh, pathology. Uh, I feel, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a bit overwhelming, isn't it, all this uh, pathology, but um, we'll hopefully, you know, there is some light there in the tunnel, as you mentioned, with the, the antivirals, and we'll hopefully talk about therapeutic agents in a moment, and you mentioned maybe um, some of those uh, fibrolytic Um, enzymes and so forth can be beneficial but um, one more area um, that is another whole big area in itself and um, you partnered with um, Mike in the the paper who is a neuroscientist as as I understand but there is some research around whether it's infection or is it the inflammation from um, SARS-CoV-2 in around the brain, particularly the brainstem, and um, that may be driving some of the dysautonomia and so forth. So can you describe um, the, the landscape there?
0: Sure. Yeah. So that is exactly another important trend is that there is a very important nerve that innervates every major trunk organ of the human body and then connects to the brain. And that nerve is called the vagus nerve. And so yeah, like I said, it, it it it's connected to the heart, the lung, the gut, all these body sites. And then when it does innervate the brain, it innervates at the back of the brain at the brainstem. That's the area of the brain that it connects to. And the brainstem at that same area has overlapping nerve bodies that control several really important functions. Um, one is the sickness behavior response. So What that means is that when the vagus nerve, if it senses inflammation in any of the body sites that it innervates in the body, let's say in the gut, if let's say there's an ongoing infection, let's say SARS-CoV-2 hasn't cleared, that will lead to inflammation that the vagus nerve can sense, receptors of the nerve, and then it will send a pro-inflammatory signal up to the brainstem, the dorsal brainstem, and that signal will alert the brainstem there through a nerve body to initiate what's called the sickness behavior response, which is basically a response that says that's how your brain says you're sick. You know, there's there's an infection there. You you feel flu-y because of this. It, it, it's, it's the reason that you feel flu-like symptoms is through the brain manifesting them to let you know that it's been communicated that there's an infection or inflammation in the area. So if you In other words, if you don't clear a pathogen and the vagus nerve keeps sensing it, that sickness behavior signal that that manifests into flu-like symptoms um, will will not stop. You'll just have ongoing flu-like symptoms in the patient. So that can be one reason why patients with long COVID continue to have flu-like symptoms. But near that same nerve body that's controlling the flu-like symptoms is another nerve body that controls autonomic signaling, that ability to move from sitting to standing and not get dizzy, and blood, blood pressure control. And inflammation from the vagus nerve that, that it conveys from the body can also throw off that signaling of the autonomic function. And then next to that, there's a nerve body that controls nausea and pain as well, which are other key long COVID symptoms. And so if you start to realize that the vagus nerve is starting to potentially throw off all these nerve bodies that can account for the top symptoms we see in patients with long COVID: the flu-like symptoms, the autonomic symptoms, the malaise, the nausea. And so, we think that signaling from the vagus nerve picking up on—and—and and this is the thing—the vagus nerve is senses any kind of inflammation in the body that that it will relate to the brainstem in in this fashion. So one person could have an ongoing SARS-CoV-2 infection in the gut, and they would start to stimulate those this this that those sets of symptoms through the through the signal into the brainstem. Another person though could have the virus still in the lung, and since the vagus nerve also innervates there, they they would have a similar uh, similar symptoms occur. But someone else might have microbiome imbalances that resulted from getting COVID, and inflammation from that will also stimulate the vagus nerve in a similar way. So it, it's, it's a unifying way for patients with long COVID who might have somewhat different issues happening in their cases, or persistence of the virus in different body sites, or microbiome imbalances in different body sites, all develop somewhat similar sets of core symptoms. The flu-like, the autonomic, the nausea, the pain symptoms, because there's this unified nerve whose signaling gets thrown off similarly in every case
1: wow what a good description and yeah it's to me it's it covers all of these symptoms not only obviously the the vagus nerve but the persistent infection and maybe this this uh multiple hit model all right so um to sort of turn to therapeutics and again just a a caveat this is not any health advice but hypothetically i suppose or moving forward uh, like a to me a treatment protocol then would be multifactorial um whether it's pharmaceutical or natural or whatever but um maybe you can comment once i go through like antivirals um and it, it could be dual antivirals or multiple uh, maybe for longer um maybe something and we haven't touched on autoimmunity but um maybe something to quote-unquote support the immune system to get those interferons up. Um, ensuring we have eubiosis in our gut and other microbiomes and maybe we could use probiotics and prebiotics and so forth. Um, maybe some, yeah, some anti-inflammatories or um, anticoagulant-type therapies. And on top of that, the, the vagus nerve, I think there was a, a pilot study now with like, um, and I've done a, a podcast on this transauricular vagal nerve stimulation. Uh, there's some data suggesting that stimulating the vagus nerve and um, promoting the uh, the other part of the pathway, the um, anti-inflammatory reflex pathway, could be beneficial. Um, so that's a sort of a, a long shopping list, but I think there's justification because you've you've covered all these areas. Did you want to add, comment, refute to any of those? Any thoughts on you know a hypothetical sort of protocol based on these targets?
0: Oh yeah, that's a that's basically. Of excellent start. That's that's what you know. Again, I'm a PhD researcher and not a doctor, so I can't give medical advice. But from yes, a theoretical perspective, from looking at the data from research and the, the topics from the research angle, yes, if people haven't cleared the virus, like I said before, combinations of antivirals, longer courses of antivirals may very well be helpful. Also, you know, modulatory drugs, but not. Immunosuppressive necessarily more the opposite drugs that would support the immune system exactly interfere on signaling T cell signaling to better help the immune system actually clear the virus or or regain its function that had been knocked down by the virus um, and and again like I said some of those T cell immunotherapies that are actually encouraging um, where where companies are actually able to engineer people's T cells to regain activity and function are are doing well in cancer, could maybe could be moved in from that space. Then yes, microbiome-based therapeutics would make sense. And there are a number of biotech companies developing microbiome-based therapeutics. So you know kind of just similar to probiotics, just but extra well researched cocktails of of organisms that, you know, can come in and, and try to replace bad imbalanced ecosystems of bacteria with better organisms that are, you know, in a in a better state. Um, you know, communities of those organisms, like a probiotic. Um, there's some of those therapies are really being innovated for Crohn's disease or other diseases that that might also be able to be uh brought into the long COVID space or, or iterated into the long COVID space. And then absolutely, yes, anticoagulants, antifibrinolytic, fibrinogenic, bremenidolytic, that's drugs that that break up fibrinogen, uh, drugs that help with vasculature issues, drugs, you know, exactly to wear down. So if you you could wear down the SARS-CoV-2 virus itself, if you could wear down, if you could bring the immune system back up to, you know, gain it back from the ability of SARS-CoV-2 to knock it down, if you could break up Microclots that that may be instigated by the virus or related infectious issues, all of that seems like it could definitely help. And then with the, you know, with the vagus nerve stimulation, yes, that that's a really interesting ongoing area of research and clinical study. Is that there are now a growing number of devices where you can stimulate the nerve um, to try to, you know, yeah, try to improve its signaling. Um, And I think if you were to combine vagus nerve stimulation with some of the other therapies that we mentioned, that might actually result in some of the best outcomes. And last, you know, for all the potential pathogens like the herpes viruses that could reactivate in a patient, those could also be treated on a case-by-case basis. The issue there, and and we have that issue somewhat with SARS-CoV-2, is there really aren't there are some herpes virus antivirals, but we need more. There isn't even a very good antiviral that really is geared at Epstein-Barr virus, which is one of the viruses that has been shown to most reactivate in patients with long COVID. So we need antiviral innovation. We need more development of antivirals right now. Um, and that will be key to that. So it's not just, you know, we know... That controlling herpes virus activity and SARS-CoV-2 activity is probably going to happen in long COVID. The question is, do we have the drugs to do it with? With SARS-CoV-2 itself, we do have Paxlovid. And we have Merck's drug Molnupiravir, although that's isn't as well researched. <laughs> so I hope we hope that those antivirals work well, but we're not even really sure how well they're working in acute COVID. So it's going to take. A lot of research and the continued innovation of antivirals. We we don't want to just stop at Paxlovid. And I, luckily, I I about to bio companies t- as regularly that are that are also creating new uh, SARS-CoV-2 antivirals or have them in the pipeline. A couple places working on Epstein-Barr virus therapeutics. Really exciting. That's what we have to do. We have to we have to think about what makes sense from our current arsenals of medication and also encourage. The pharmaceutical industry to develop new drugs to target these issues.
1: Yeah, thank you. Great summary. All right, well, it's been a real uh, great tour around all things long COVID, and I really encourage our audience to to download and, and read the paper. It's a uh, very detailed, very convincing. Um, just before we wrap up, so not only you've got you're involved in the, the polybio research. And it, it took me a while to try and work out what you meant by PolyBio, but now I get it like you're, <laughs> this is my interpretation, you're you're collaborating with different um, groups, right? So um, really sort of agnostic and reaching out and collaborating. Uh, so you got the, the PolyBio and it could be a completely different name, but um, you're also part of like a long COVID uh, workforce t- task force. Can you describe that?
0: I think what you mean, that is our research initiative. So basically we have a specific polybio research foundation. So our nonprofit focused on long COVID called the long COVID research initiative. Ah, yes, and that's, okay. that's our research program. So they're connected. Yeah. yeah that's basically, yeah. we created a whole specific program on long COVID because we do study ME and those related conditions too. So, so that's, that's, that, that's the focus on long COVID, but it's also brilliant polybio.
1: So what's uh, what's in your pipeline? What's what's on your plate? Where where you what are you excited about in terms of the the collaboration research? What can we hopefully see in the future?
0: Yeah, we have truly some of the top teams in the world working with us. We're lucky that we got a recent large donation from a very generous donor to move a good number of our top programs uh, projects forward with teams Fantastic. from different. Yeah, and and what we're doing is our research program focuses on. So we have tissue biopsy studies. So obviously, since the virus persists in tissue, we need to get tissue samples from patients to know if it's still there. So we've worked hard to get the ethical approval to safely collect intestinal tissue, lung tissue, lymph node aspirate samples, um, skeletal muscle tissue, peripheral nerve tissue samples via biopsy from patients with long COVID and also from, in many cases, healthy patients who are willing to serve as as volunteers for the study. And we're going to use a lot of advanced methods to not just look for SARS-CoV-2 and its proteins in those samples, but to also just characterize the immune cell activity in the sample, the gene expression of our human genes in the sample, and see how those changes correlate with the presence or absence of the virus even the the architecture of the tissue itself we can use a technique called single nuclear rna sequencing to just understand what individual cells on, in tissue are doing to, and 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 by that we can map the whole architecture of the tissue to understand if the vasculature is damaged to understand the function and and and, and actual uh you know true function of the nerves there so we we can correlate the presence or absence of the virus with all these other key immune metabolic human uh, gene expression and, and changes. So, so that's the tissue-type biopsy studies. We're also doing some really creative imaging studies that can that can image viruses in the human body. Um, it's pretty cool. There's a team at University of California, San Francisco, and they'll take monoclonal antibodies and tag them with a radioligand and then safely inject them into patients with long COVID. And then they put the patients into a whole body PET scanner. And what happens is the monoclonals that are tagged with a little radioactive particle travel throughout the whole deep tissues of the patient. And if they find the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein because it's still there, they bind it. And then a little photon of light is emitted from the radio particle and the machine they're in images that photon and what you get is a map of where the virus is throughout the whole person's body it's just really amazing they've done that with hiv and and so we, we can sort of map the virus via that that team's research in in deep tissue sites and then we have a number of studies where we're using the activity of immune cells in blood to serve as biosensors of the virus and tissue so mm-hmm. you can take t cells and b cells and and use advanced tools now to to basically ca- characterize their, their gene expression, their transcriptional activity. And you can tell then if they're still turned on or responding to uh, antigen that may not have cleared. So that those cells are trafficking through tissue. So when they get into the blood, they will still retain often the, the state. If, if they found SARS-CoV-2 antigen in tissue, when they get to the blood, they're still activated in that way and we can capture that. And those studies are important because we can then turn those into biomarkers that we can better measure in patients so that we don't have to collect their tissue over time. We can actually get a blood sample and infer the possible persistence of the virus from the immune cell activity in the sample. And then we also have sensitive methods for the spike protein detection and also for the identification of a very wide range of molecules created by Other bacterial, fungal pathogens, microbiome products, metabolites—all of that on blood uh, studies on the clotting, on the microclots, on the permeability of the gut, on the you know microbiome composition of the gut, the lungs. But in those studies where we're doing the microbiome composition of the lungs and the gut, we're going to also look for the virus in the tissue from the same patient to better understand. If the presence or absence of the virus correlates with the microbiome imbalances we see in patients. So what we're doing is we're and we're also just doing other imaging studies to uh, detect fibrin in patients to measure neuroinflammation in the brain, um, even to actually understand vagus nerve stimulation. We're we're doing going to stimulate the vagus nerve in a scanner when a patient is in there. And then we can actually see if the vagus nerve is signaling differently in patients with long COVID versus people who are uh, controlled. So so we have a lot, all these interrelated projects that will basically yeah, analyze tissue and blood and through a number of mechanisms to, 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 to get at the root of this problem.
1: Wow. Maybe that's why it's polybio. You've got so many <laughs> projects going yeah. on. It's amazing. <laughs> um, wow. That's amazing. Uh, I look forward to it. Just, yeah, Amy, thanks so much. Um, not only, yeah, sound like you're a brilliant scientist, but um, as they say, science is a team sport and you really, sounds like you're collaborating with a lot of very, very intelligent and caring people. Um, and on top of that, you've communicated so well and, and been so generous with your time today. I really appreciate your time. Uh, all the best, good luck. And yeah, maybe I can touch in in the future and hopefully, yeah, you've... um help make some inroads in this condition. And maybe, yeah, you can uh, rewrite the textbooks in the future around infectious disease.
0: Exactly. We do think that the research that and the trends we identify in long COVID, that we can iterate those into better research and more innovative research on related conditions. So it's exciting. And yes, I will add that the research teams we work with are incredible. We just are collaborators. They are dedicated scientists that are just working around the clock on this and it's really cool to have energy from so many people working together we meet every week and we discuss and brainstorm topics we share ideas and data and it's it's a great energy so it does although long COVID is a terrible problem i do feel optimistic that we can make inroads
1: I'm very confident um, with you involved. So yeah, thanks again, congratulations, good luck and to look forward to hearing some developments. Thanks for your time.
0: Definitely, thanks for your interest.
1: For useful links and resources,
0: make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.